and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your support. We love sharing these conversations, and we're just grateful to have you here listening with us. But if you are inspired and enjoyed today's conversation, we would encourage you to go to patreon.com slash intentional performers. Once again, that's patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. It really does help us as we continue to try to build this thing out. Thank you all for your continued support. And we appreciate all of you who have already supported us over at Patreon. Now to today's guest. So Don Yeager is an award-winning keynote speaker. He's a business leadership coach. He's an 11-time New York Times bestselling author and a longtime associate editor for Sports Illustrated. So Don is a writer, but what has made him a great writer over the years is his thirst for curiosity on how people compete at their highest level. And as a speaker, he has worked with audiences as diverse as Fortune 500 companies and cancer survivor groups, where he shares his personal story. And you will hear a lot from Don today about how he is a storyteller. And many of the stories that he shares involves elite competitors, athletes, people in the political sphere, coaches. And he loves to share the human side of those people. So whether he's interviewed these top elite performers or he's studied some of the biggest names in our politics and the history of the United States, Don loves sharing wisdom, knowledge, mindset, mission, the values of these people. And that's going to come across in our conversation today. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Don. And when you do, if you could share it on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, wherever it is your social, we would both be forever grateful. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Don Yeager. Don, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you when I started to research your background. I was trying to figure out, all right, where do I want to start with this guy? Because he's got a lot going on. Um, but it seems like the main thread throughout your life has been a passion for writing. And writing has stuck with you even as you've evolved 
and you've shifted gears in your career. So I'd love to start there and just get a sense of when did writing first come into your life and what was that like for you? Sure, Brian. By the way, thank you very much for having me. Obviously, um, I, I love the discussion around around um, uh, mental coaching and many of the things that you're deeply involved in because I really do think from everything I've learned over the years is um, that's the differentiator between the good and the great. I mean, you know, physical skill sets are often um, quite quite similar, right, between great athletes. But the thing that separates the really good ones, uh, the really great ones from the good ones uh, is that ability to manage those, uh, those few inches between their ears. Right. And so, um, love, love being here. But in answer to your question about, about writing, you, you know, sometimes in life, the greatest things that happen to you are things you didn't mean to happen to you. Right. Uh, but that, uh, by accident, you, you wander into a world that you weren't expecting. And, um, I, I grew up in Hawaii and Japan. My father was a, was a preacher and, um, and, uh, and did some work with the government. And, and at the, at, when I turned, I, when I turned 13, our family moved to, uh, Indiana and, uh, kind of a real come down, as you might imagine from Hawaii and Japan. Um, but when we did, because I'd spent my entire life essentially around, um, the military, military bases, military families, uh, I signed up for, you get one elective class when you're a freshman in high school at, 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 in the district I went to. And I signed up for, my elective was going to be ROTC. I was going to be, I thought I'd go to the army one day or some, some uh, branch of the military and, and serve. And the night before classes started, the counselor called my house and said, you know, um, we don't have enough kids signed up, so we're canceling ROTC. But that's okay. I put you on the student newspaper, and um, and so though I didn't really know that I had a passion for writing, didn't know that I'd be any good at it. It was the thing she put me on, and um, uh, and from that a career was born. And it's kind of a really, you know, random thing. You know, we all love to we love to hear those people who at eight years old knew they were going to blah blah blah. Uh, I was not one of those. I just happened to be put there by a guidance counselor. And all these years later, um, you know, we've done okay with it. So I'd love to back up one step and just try to get a sense of child. I mean, a childhood in Hawaii and Japan, dad was a preacher, but it sounds like you were also on military bases. Can you paint that picture for me? What, what was life like for you as a kid? Well, you know, it's that, it's that random thing. Um, when you grow up in Hawaii, I don't think you appreciate that the rest of the world is different than that, right? You, I mean, I, I would guess that's probably true for most of us. You grew up in Milwaukee. You don't know the world's any different than that. Um, and so I thought everybody went to school with, with bare, barefoot like I did and uh, weren't required to wear shoes. Um, and uh, I, I think the one thing that I appreciate most about it as I now am a little later in life um, is the ethnic diversity of everything in Hawaii, you know? Uh, you look at my school pictures. My kids were having fun with this um, not long ago. They were looking at some of my old school pictures. And um, there, you know, uh, there's three or four Filipino kids, a few Korean kids, uh, kids from China or uh, the, the, uh, the, the islands, the islanders from Samoans or whatever. And then suddenly right in the middle is this little toothless uh, white kid with a, uh, with a bow tie, right? Um, and so I didn't grow up around any, just, I, there was no sense that uh, ethnicity really existed in my world, right? I grew up just 
one of a whole bunch of different, we, you know, they call Hawaii the melting pot uh, because we all coexist there so generally well. And, um, and that's the way I grew up. And I, I love that. I mean, I think that probably paid great dividends for me throughout my life. I absolutely, um, you know, you're just taught not to be judgmental of others uh, because of exterior um, uh, conditions. You know, it's not, uh, it's color skin, um, you know, whatever those things have no, just played no bearing in my childhood. And I love that because it today, I think it made me a better reporter over the course of my career. I didn't enter any interviews ever thinking, oh, well, this person must be X, right? So, And dad being a preacher, was faith a big part of your upbringing as well? And if you could it just was. expand yeah. on that a little bit. My dad was a, was a preacher in the Methodist church. And um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I grew up, you know, my sister and I were Donnie and Nani. We sang in church often. I played the ukulele and we were just, you know, we were that, we were the little kids that uh, the dad would bring up to sing a song every once in a while. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was a, a big piece of who I, who I grew up as and who I am today. And so I, I love uh, that, um, that all that foundational, all those foundational elements were there um, as a child. Was the church where you first started really performing or was there something before then? No, it was the church. And, you know, and again, I wouldn't call what we did performing. I think what we did was we did what dad told us to do. Dad had an open slot on the, uh, on the church agenda and needed somebody to sing. And so we became the somebody. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it's fun. And what values did your parents pass down to you and your sister? I think the thing that um, my parents passed down, um, they, you know, education wasn't a huge deal in our fa family. Um, uh, no one, I, I was the first in our family to actually graduate from a four-year school. Um, and, uh, for your college. And, um, but it was, uh, but what I did, what we did have was just this amazing confidence that, um, family was always going to be there with you. Right. And that it was going to, um, and so that's the relationship you need to make sure you treasure and, and, uh, nurture. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've told the story a few times with, with, with friends, but, you know, I, I'm so I'm 56 today, and which means so I'm growing up in the 70s, right? And a lot of houses in the 70s, it, especially at our in our socioeconomic category, had were, were similar in that in their living room the TV was the most important thing, right? Because you watched it every evening, whatever it might be. And everybody had a couch, and often had like two recliners, usually on either end of the couch. And um, and our family had that too, you know. But uh, my parents situated the two recliners next to each other. Um, so that whatever we did every night while they were watching TV, they were holding hands, which I just love seeing, you know, just as a kid, it gives you that amazing confidence that, um, things are going to be okay there, which is pretty cool. And sport. Did, were you into sport as a 13 year old, 14 year old? When did sport come into your life? I loved, I loved, I loved competing. I, I, I was trying to be on every field I could, um, you know, I, I huge outdoor, we had the only basketball hoop in our, in our neighborhood in Hawaii. And so I had uh, all the kids over all the time playing. I just loved, um, you know, loved playing hoops, loved, uh, uh, playing football, baseball. I wasn't as good, good at that, but, um, but I loved anything that had to do with the ball and being outdoors, uh, was my childhood, which, you know, I, I, I wish we could, 
I wish I could push that as much on my own children, um, but it's uh, but it's uh, you know amazing today uh, all the options that weren't that didn't exist when I was a kid, right? What, what did you love about sport, and what do you love about sports today? Well, what I love about sports is I, I think it's the ultimate metaphor, right, for the human condition, in that it's um, uh, generally uh, well, not generally. I would argue that in any case, even in what we would call individual sports like golf or tennis, um, you truthfully are as good as the team you have around you, right? Uh, now, that team may not be on the court with you or in the physical presence of your competitive environment, but you're as good as the people that you put yourself around. Um, I love the idea that that um, uh, there's an, a winner and a loser, right? I love I. I I love fighting. I'm, I competitively love to win um, at anything I do. Um, last night we were at a restaurant with my family playing Uno, and uh, you know when I when I win at Uno, man, it's not. It, it, I, I make sure to make to, to let my kids know that I have just crushed them, um, and so <laughs> we have a lot of fun. I love competitive um, competitive environments, and uh, um, and I think sports is that for me. Um, and uh, and then there's the gracefulness of it, right? The 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 interdependence. Like, what does it mean to um, to make somebody else better? I love that. So. And so, what was driving you to decide to pursue a career in sports journalism? You, was there a spark? Was there something that led you there? You said it kind of happened by accident, starting out. But what actually caused you to end up? pursuing this path where you really wanted to get into the weeds as far as sports went? So I think what I appreciated or what I learned to appreciate was that um, it fed my, um, my curious nature, right? I, by nature, I would say um, uh, I'm a learner and I'm uh, extraordinarily curious about things. Like I want to understand, um, you know, what, what were you thinking in that moment? What was happening in that moment? Where was, where were you, um, what allowed you to, to do what you did or what I, I'm, I'm always just trying to, you know, the actual, just reporting on what happened on the field, something you could do sitting in a press box that bored the snot out of me. Uh, what got me was trying to, um, uh, to use your phrase to, to get in, to get in the head of the people that were, um, that were, uh, doing things that I admired. And, um, and things that I wished I had the capacity to do. I was never good enough to, to have played at any level um, and, of, of any significance, but I was good enough to understand what they were trying to do and then ask them good enough, ask them questions that could help me understand and then hopefully tell the story of what was going on in their head. And so I didn't grow up in Hawaii. I grew up right outside Washington, D.C. My parents are from... Basically the same thing. Very similar. Uh, well, we share Barack Obama, I guess. There's our commonality. There's our, com there's our commonality. But growing up in this area, people often ask me if I was drawn to politics. And I just wasn't. Uh, in some ways, because the suburbs of Washington, D.C. are very different than Capitol Hill. You're, you know, your suburbs are kind of similar to any other suburbs that you would find in any other major city. But for you, I'm curious, as I did some research, there's definitely an interest um, in politics. and. Yeah. So what I would love to unpack with you is the quote-unquote game of politics, the game of sport, the game of business. There seems to be three major interests. And if I'm missing another one, 
I, w- I would love for you to expand on that as well. But I'd love to just hear similarities, differences that you notice when you observe these different um, environments. Well, so I would think if there's a fourth one, for me anyway, it's a game of family, right? And, and I think in all of them, um, the commonality is uh, the willingness to, um, well, first off, I love you know, competing, as I said. And so sports, competition, politics is a competition, right? Let's be honest. Um, I, I joke all the time when people say, well, how do you, why, why do you like both sports and politics? And I say, you know, it's, uh, they're, they're exactly alike. Uh, they're full contact <laughs> and they require, and there's a, uh, there's a winner and a loser at the end of every, uh, at the end of every contest. Um, but, but the, but the key to all of it is strategy, right? Um, outcomes are what everybody focuses on, but what intrigues me is the strategy. Now I don't yet know what the outcome is going to be for my nine or 10 year old, right? My two children, but I know what the strategies are that I try to apply to help make me help give them the best opportunity they have to be to win. Right. Um, that's the same thing I want to do when I'm interested in sports, right? Outcomes are awesome. And that's what we all, that's the, that's the agate, right? That's the box score. But what's, what was the strategy that led to that outcome? That fascinates me. And how did we execute on the strategy? And what did we do when the, when the strategy failed us? Um, uh, those piece parts of all of these, uh, you know, you have, a, you have a vision of what you want to achieve politically. Well, what happens when others don't share that vision? And you've got to come up with a new strategy. What is that? Who, who does it better than others? And what do we learn from those who do it well? Um, all of those are piece parts of what I'm of, of where I'm driven, and um, uh, and it's those lessons that I think allow me to enjoy all those aspects of my life um, with great passion. So there's two components to you that I'm starting to figure out, which is that you're super curious and you love competition, and then what I'm hearing from you is that you leverage that curiosity to learn about how the competition plays out. I've had on a number of journalists on here and curiosity seems to be like the thing underneath the thing for all of them. They're just curious and trying to learn a story. And then whenever I work with athletes, especially professional athletes, competitiveness is a baseline. It's foundational. It's fundamental for them. I'm curious if you think that curiosity and or competition can be uh, developed. Uh, both of them, I, I believe, can be built. So I'm a I'm a believer that there are certain things that are genetic: how tall you'll be, you know, how uh, how uh, those kind of things. But I think almost everything else in life, uh, especially if it has to do um, with a non physical characteristic, I think almost everything else is developable. Right? I'm a b- big believer in and uh, leadership skill. Uh, you know, all those people talk about being born leaders. There's no born leader, in my opinion. Right? I think um, there's some people that have might have more per, might have developed more personality or other things, but they weren't born leaders. They had to learn leadership, and uh, and you learn things when you're curious, right? Uh, when they intrigue you. So I think that's um, when I try to think of things that I inspire in an audience or in my family or um, in my business. It's a curiousness. What are other people doing that are doing? What are other people who are doing what we're doing really well? What are, what, what are they doing and why? And what can we take from that? And what did they fail at? That way, maybe it's a mistake I don't have to make, 
right? Um, all those things play in for me. Um, and I teach them to my team, my work uh, at home. And I teach them when I'm out talking and speaking at businesses. Um, you know, the, the great teams study other great teams. The great winners study other great winners. So, so I'd love to go into that leadership piece. So you've studied Washington, you've studied Jefferson, Jackson, uh, you spent time with Wooden. I mean, not that Wooden is the same as them, but in a lot of ways kind of is from a philosophical standpoint. Um, and then you, you've just spent time with David Ross, who's this incredible teammate for the Chicago Cubs. You spent time with Walter Payton. There, you've been around unique leaders. And so I'm curious, is there a story of those people's path that showed how they developed their leadership or their competitive drive or their curiosity? Is there a story from one of those people that really resonates with you? You know, if there's one, and you mentioned him uh, there, probably the least well-known of everybody that was on that list uh, was David Ross, right? Here's this guy. He was a backup catcher. Um, but his story is really fantastic to me in that, um, you know, when he's, um, he's halfway through his career, he played 15 years in the major leagues. So he was no, um, he was no slouch. I mean, it's not easy to make the league and to stay there is, is even more difficult. And, uh, but he wasn't great either. Right. But in halfway through his career, he's a starting catcher in Cincinnati and he gets into a dispute with the manager, Dusty Baker. You guys know him in Washington. Gets into a dispute with his manager and he gets cut from the team. And uh, when the Boston Red Sox were heading into the playoffs that year, they were looking for a third string catcher. And here was a guy that was a starter and he's available. And they uh, go to sign David Ross. And when they do, they call Cincinnati. And the word they get is, he's a bad teammate. Like he's not the guy you want to add to your roster. You know, Theo Epstein's leading Boston at the time. He says, you know, we're not looking for a starter. We're just looking for a third string guy. We, we're a strong clubhouse. We can handle, a, we can handle him. Well, he goes there, and you know the, the the Red Sox don't make the World Series. Season ends, and they're getting ready to send him off because they only he was a short term player, a rental for them basically. And um, and on his way out, Theo Epstein grabs him and says, "By the way, you should know your reputation is that you're a bad teammate. That's what people in the league say about you. That in moments when it matters, you think about you ahead of other people." Now he could have argued. Instead, he stood up and said, thank you. And he went home and he told his wife, if I ever get a chance to play baseball again, I don't want anyone to ever say those words about me again. So to your point, David Ross will tell you that if he really goes back and evaluates it, he knows today that he was a bad teammate in his past. He was more obsessed over his numbers than the team's numbers, right? Which is true in a lot of sales environments too. Like we don't care if the company's making money. We just want to hit our number, right? Um, and there's all these things where, where what he learned about himself was that he couldn't get a job again, given that that was his reputation if he didn't change. So he went about the effort to change, not just his reputation, but who he really was at his core. And he began that process. He started learning what it meant to be a great teammate, asking players on his next team, the Atlanta Braves to tell them about the best teammate they ever had. Give me three words to describe that person. And then every day he started asking himself, what can I do to be that person who's, who would be described that way the next time someone asked about me? 
and he learned how to become a great teammate. So my point is to your, to your question, there's a story there of a guy who ultimately goes on to win two world series. He hits a home run in his last at bat in major league baseball wins the world series with the Chicago Cubs gets carried from the field by his teammates on their shoulders all because he chose to learn something when uh, middle way through his career. And that's a real, that's encouraging to all of us, I think, because there's a lot of things we might say, man, if I could only do it over again, you can, it doesn't matter where you are. There's two parts of that story that are fascinating to me. One is Theo Epstein um, having the leadership character to actually give him the feedback because a lot of people just say, screw it, like just go off and they don't He's have not to compare anymore. Right? Yeah. But he had the character to say, hey, this is something that might be helpful for this person. And I'm going to be radically transparent and give him this feedback. And then, of course, Ross being able to take the feedback instead of looking at it as being personal or critical and then doing something with it. And so that part is where I'd love to, to unpack a little bit is what do you think in him allowed him to still receive the feedback even if for, for a lot of people, they would have said, oh, forget it. It's their problem or it's their fault. What, what do you think inside him allowed him to interpret that as feedback rather than criticism? Um, so, you know, I've asked David that question and I'm, I'm actually writing it down again because I think um, that's a, um, that, is, that is probably the ultimate, that's the, that's the ultimate sign of maturity, right? Um, I think what it was, uh, he will tell you, was that he was at a crossroads in his career. He'd been cut, his reputation was bad, the team that picked him up didn't want him any, didn't want to keep him any longer. Um, sometimes in life, the things we have to do to repair or to fix ourselves or make ourselves better only happen when we have hit a, uh, when we've hit a low, right? A new low. And David was at that new low. So he was open to it. I think as much as anything, he'll tell you because he was not riding high. That's the thing that, um, you know, it's impressive that David did that, but I think it's, it's, it's human. It's more human nature to accept um, uh, criticism. If you're at a place where, I mean, crap, I've kind of bottomed out here. I may not ever play this game again. You know, yes. Uh, so uh, I would, I would have been more impressed if they had, if, if Boston had won the world series and David was sent off uh, at the end of that, and, you know, after having done really well for Boston. And Theo had said the same thing, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to learn how to get better. But it's still, um, whatever it takes to accept properly uh, criticism and make yourself better is a, um, is a gift to yourself. Yeah, it's, I, I think often we need to experience some level of pain, or pain's a strong word. It could be challenge, adversity, whatever word you want to attack to it, right. attach to it to actually cause us to change. Because to your point, if he was still, you know, crushing it in an all-star, that feedback might not have triggered him in the same way. Uh, what did he find when he was asking those people, give me three words that describe a great teammate? What, what does make a great teammate? So, um, you know, the, the first was, uh, one of the most important words was a humility, Right. Um, and, uh, that the best teammates <clears throat> aren't just really, aren't just talented, but also are, are humble enough to be able to say, um, cause humble humility shows up in a lot of different ways. One of the most important ways it shows up is in a, uh, thirst to learn, right? Um, those who are, have 
those who struggle with humility are often those who believe they've got this down. Um, and those who uh, have a, a humble nature are those who at their, at their soul believe that there's more I can get. There's better, I can, there's better out there for me, right? What do I need to do to, to make better happen? Um, the second thing that really was uh, fascinating to, when he was looking at it was that the truly great, the, the great teammates were willing to be mentors, even to those um, who might well be keeping them from the field, right? Um, you know, are you willing to mentor your replacement, knowing that that may mean that you're out of a job at the end of a year? Well, are you willing to mentor um, uh, maybe a player that's a little bit better than you? Uh, and, and as that player matures, you get less playing time. Are you willing to do that? for the good of the team, even though it might not personally be great for you. Um, David found that to be a really hard, that was a really hard one for him, right? Because he struggled all those years as a backup and it's difficult to spend your career as a backup. And then the last piece that was really interesting, I, and there, were, there, were, there were 15 words that were on this list when he, when he came up with it. Um, but, uh, but the one that really stood out to me when he and I were talking about it was that People, what they said was that a great teammate is also an, a fierce competitor. Don't think for a second. Don't mistake the the great teammate as only the all shucks guy, the you know pat you on the back. I'm just lucky to be here, guy. They are fired up about winning as much as anybody else on the team. And because if they're not fired up about winning, they really can't be a great teammate, right? They can't um, because they might make an excuse for you when what they really need to be doing is helping you understand you missed the moment. Right. And, um, and speaking truth to each other is a really important piece of being a great teammate. I love that. I, I study mindset and specifically as it relates to performance. And I have this framework that I'm working with where if you study the elite performers, they have this almost dichotomy or this polarity of their mindset, which is humble in preparation. But I even, I think they're arrogant in performance. Like David Ross thinking that he's going to hit a home run in the World Series after being a backup for a lot of years. There's got to be a level of inner arrogance. And I've talked to professional football players that played for Joe Gibbs, who's a legend in the Washington, D.C. area. And he would always say, bring a level of arrogance to the field. If you study Steve Kerr and Steph Curry, you hear Steve Kerr say, I love Steph's arrogance. They use the word arrogance. Tom Coughlin had this uh, idea of humble enough to prepare, confident enough to perform. But I think it actually is another level above confident. It is this inner belief that I'm important, that I matter, and that I want to be in this position. And so I've got these binaries. There's about, uh, I, I created like 40 of these binaries that our mindset and preparation being different than the mindset for performance. And given that you've written 28 books and I'm writing one and have been at it for a while now, um, that might be a conversation that we can have over a cup of coffee or lunch. Um, but I would love to hear as you, as you go back into your database of performers that you've spent time with and you've been with some of the best of all time, how did you see them mentally prepare and then potentially shift when they were actually between the lines and performing. So uh, you, I think you captured it really well there. That, that, and then, I mean, the humility of preparation is um, maybe borne out by this entire, the, the idea that most of, the, uh, most of their life is spent um, 
in in a gym with uh, with a handful of teammates and a, and a few coaches, right? And often by themselves. Are you, I mean, the truly great ones are are there are are in the gym by themselves. Um, that takes great humility to still drive yourself to uh, to a to a um, to exhaustion, if you will, uh, when no one's paying attention, right? When no one's noticing. And so uh, I love that. And then obviously the arrogance, you're right. I mean, when they walk out, um, I've had, I've had all kinds of people tell me, Oh my gosh, Walter Payton must've been incredible to be around. Uh, when that guy was just so, I mean, his nickname was sweetness, right? Does it get any better than that? Uh, but at the end of the day, Walter was fierce when it, I mean, you know, he, uh, he had a, he, the name of our book that we wrote together was never die easy. And it wasn't that it, that was actually his running style, which was, I am never going to step out of, I'm never going to make it easy for you to take me down. Right. Um, you, I will gain every conceivable inch on every carry. Um, uh, I had the chance. I lived with him for the last few weeks of his life while he was dying. And we watched some NFL games. There was actually one particular game with a, running back from the Minnesota Vikings. Now, Walter was a Chicago bear, so he automatically didn't like Minnesota Vikings, but this running back was enormously talented and he's going down the sidelines and, you know, suddenly a defensive back's coming up and instead of taking it to the defensive back, he steps out of bounds. And Walter had, you know, some very unkind words for that running back who was a, a greatly talented. I think it was an all pro that year that we were, uh, or, or one of the great players that year, because he said, you know, that if you really want to compete, you got to make sure your, your opponent knows how badly you want it. And your opponent will figure that out by whether you lower your shoulder, or you step out of bounds. And, um, I, and I love that, right? I mean, there was some amazing, everybody talked about how sweet he was, but boy, he wanted to give it to you. I love that story because we live in a world now of data and analytics and that stuff is really important and it's really valuable and it's changed how sport is played. But there's always a game underneath the game that you're not going to see in the data. Maybe they've figured out a way to quantify that, but data and analytics would probably say, no, go out of bounds. Like, Don't get hurt. Don't put yourself in that spot, in that precarious position. But what does him lowering his shoulder to the cornerback do for the next time he goes to the sideline? And maybe that allows him to cut it back and, and go upfield because the guy um, is, is concerned. And so there's always a thing underneath the thing. And that's one of the things I'm fascinated by in business and sport in anything is we live in story and we often just see the story, but what's underneath it. And I want to bring the story back to you, which is, all right, so You've had this successful writing career. You're writing for Sports Illustrated, which I imagine for most journalists at the time, uh, sports journalists at the time where you were, that's Sports Illustrated was the thing. I mean, that was, as I said, I've had other journalists on and they've said, yeah, SI was, that was the pinnacle. And so I'm curious if you could fill in the gaps for me a little bit and fill it in for our listeners as far as going to SI, having this dream job, becoming an editor. Um, what in you decided or wanted to go into speaking, to go into consulting, to do all this stuff rather than just stay in your lane, become a great writer. I had George Solomon on the podcast, who's a legendary editor for the Washington Post. And George is an editor. Like that's what George loves to do. And he became one of the best editors of all time in the sports world. But that was his thing. Why? I'm going to say pivot. 
but why do why do you want to do other stuff? Why do you want to travel and speak and write twenty some books? Like, why not just be a a great writer at Sports Illustrated? That's a great that's a great question. I would tell you the answer to that is it is it. Um, hopefully one of the things that you're always trying to do is look ahead in your industry. Right. And, um, and so I, I became worried about journalism many years ago. Right. And, uh, and the, uh, the, the whole paywall structure, you know, what were people willing to pay for? And, um, as the internet was growing in popularity and other things were happening, uh, the economy was shifting and, uh, advertising dollars, sports illustrated used to be, yeah, a we we publish fifty editions a year. Today, I think they're publishing twenty six. Um, you know, they used to be nice and thick. Today, they're not. It's a, you know, there's just a different. The the world was changing, and so for me, uh, it happened. Sometimes, again, we we talked about it earlier. Um, sometimes in life, things happen to you that that change your dynamic and what you, what drives you in some ways. Um, so it was ten years ago when SI was going through a shift because uh, the economy was shifting. And that also happened to coincide with, uh, I, I became a father for the first time. And so I'm sitting there and uh, when, with SI, I was traveling all the time. And, um, and I wanted more control over my schedule. And I wanted to be able to do things that would, that would allow me to not be, you know, an absentee father. And so it worked out that about that time, SI came in and offered those of us who were writers at the magazine. And though my title was associate editor, um, the truth was that was the title they gave me, though I was a writer. Um, it was a title uh, that allowed them to pay me in a slightly different pay scale, which was awesome. Um, and uh, uh, But I stayed as a writer for the entire my entire time there. Um, and uh, I just, I so the timing lined up. Right, the magazine was looking to make a change. They offered buyouts uh, to writers. I was looking to make a change. I become a father, and I wanted to, you know, I all those things lined up. and And I looked and said, okay, if this is going to happen, I knew this about a year in advance. What would I like to do if I were doing something different? And I wanted. I really thought my gift is storytelling, and that if I could learn to tell stories to an audience, like I told them. Uh, to the page, maybe I could do it pretty well. And so I studied other speakers. I went to look at who was doing it really well. I hired coaches to work with me on how I could do it better. And, um, and then when the time came and the, and the opportunity to shift worked at Sports Illustrated, I knew what was coming next. And um, so I guess that would be maybe the piece of advice you get to throw out there about intentional, about being intentional about what you do is, also, don't believe that what you're doing today will always last. Um, if you, and if you think that way, you're trying to think, what could this, what could my skill set become next? And what do I have to do to develop that skill set to deliver on next? And um, I was fortunate. All those things lined up. Today, I get to do about 70 corporate speaking events a year all around the world get to take my family on a lot of these amazing trips to really cool places. And, um, and I write, still write one book a year, which was awesome, which is awesome. Um, and, uh, and it was all because I had that foundational, those years at Sports Illustrated. So selfishly, I'm going to come back to writing and writing a book, but 
selflessly, I want to find out when you feel most alive. Is it writing? Is it speaking? Is it you, you've done serious journalism traveling to hostile environments? When do you feel most alive inside? So I would tell you, um, uh, you, you pointed out a couple of opportunities. I went to Iraq um, uh, on the first anniversary of the invasion of Iraq uh, and, and was working on a story about the preparation of that, of that 2004 Olympic team. Uh, the Iraqis were going to send their first fully um, free Olympic team to the games in Athens. And, um, uh, and the challenge was that they, um, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein's son Uday had been the chairman of the Iraqi Olympic committee, uh, for many years and had decimated their program. And so I went into Iraq, um, and the, the, the height of the kind of insurgency, um, uh, one of the uh, waves of insurgency to get to study and travel with the Iraqi Olympic team. And it was really powerful. Um, and then I also had an opportunity many years ago to travel in Afghanistan uh, with the Mujahideen when they were fighting the Soviets. And I would tell you, those would be, I would, I would tell you straight up, those are moments when I felt completely alive because um, though I was not um, a war fighter, um, I, was, uh, I was in the presence of those who were and everything around you meant more in those moments. I think when you talk to people who are, who have uh, that background of, uh, of combat, they will tell you that that's true, right? Um, uh, my good fortune is they weren't, my, mine were not long-term engagements, so I was not, uh, I don't compare myself in any way to any of those folks who do that professionally. But yes, you're very much alive when everything around you um, is, uh, when there's a different, vibe to everything around you. It's interesting. The path you picked with that answer was also probably where you, you probably felt the most afraid. Uh, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, sure. What's, what's your biggest fear? Um, today, I would tell you straight up, it's that ability. Um, uh, gosh, my greatest fear would be to, um, to, to have something happen that wouldn't allow me to walk my daughter down the aisle one day. Like you know, whether that's a whether that's a health challenge or, um, or or something, you know, an accident or whatever it might be, I would that would be my greatest fear. So, what do you intentionally do to make sure that that won't happen? Well, I, I'm pretty intentional about my health, trying to stay uh, trying to stay um, vibrant. I, I still play. I mean, even at my advanced age, I still play basketball often. Love the game. Um, and uh, still work out uh, almost every day, and uh, just try to be try to be thoughtful in that area because I want to make sure I um, I'm there when when that happens. But I'm also trying to stay mentally sharp. I think that that's you know I don't ever I'm um, I'm never satisfied with what I know or what I'm told. I'm always trying to ask the next question, and that um, that again it's curiosity it uh, it keeps me keeps me, I think, sharper. And I'm just curious about greatness for you. So you, you have been very clear saying, hey, I get 70 speaking gigs a year. It's great. I can bring my family to cool spots and I don't have to travel as much as I did when I was at SI. Can you be great while still being great at your home life? Um, 
how do how do those work? Well, um, you know, I I I think we're I, it's a constant challenge, right? It is difficult, and you have to. Um, I think the thing I had to learn was that that there are sacrifices that that have to be made. Um, because I mean, just just a couple of years ago, I mean, I was so uh, I I, lo- I I love speaking. I, I love being again. There's there's no comparison of the answer I gave you about you know Afghanistan and Iraq to anything else that I've done in my lifetime. But being on a stage, group of folks standing in front of you, ready to have you teach them something if you do it well, and and engage them for an hour. And hopefully at the end of the hour, have them look down at their watch and go, man, I can't believe that was an hour, right? That's the best. If you can do that, if you can tell stories well enough that people are just with you and hanging on your words, that's really fun. It's engaging. Um, But a couple of years ago, I was doing that so often. I was on the road a lot more than I am today. Just I didn't say no to anybody. If you had had money and and I had an open date, I was there. And, um, and, And, you know, we realize as a family, my wife and I really sat down and said, that's unhealthy for our family. So we came up with um, guardrails that we put around my travel and my time away and, you know, trying to work constantly on those guardrails. How do we make sure that we're, I, when I'm home, I'm doing, I'm trying to be present everywhere that I am. And when I'm home, I work really diligently to be present. What do you do to, to be present? Uh, set my phone somewhere else first off, right? So I'm not constantly checking it when I'm with the kids. Um, second, I, I, again, by nature, I ask questions for a living. That's what I do. My kids will tell you, I ask them questions all day long, you know, tell me about this. Tell me about that. I think I've, i I've probably worn out my welcome with them at times. Um, but it's, but I think I ask questions to try to hopefully draw something out of them that will allow me to ask another question. And that's where, that's where life gets good for me. It's interesting because you really talked about an aliveness that you feel on stage as a speaker, an aliveness when you were researching and and doing journalism in hostile environments. Yet I'm looking at your background and you've also written 28 books. And so I would love to just learn from you as far as your style, your process. How do you write a book a year? Um, if you could unveil any tricks of the trade to somebody who does not consider themselves to be a journalist or a writer, but somebody who has some ideas and thinks like, I'd like to share those ideas with the world. Um, what, what advice would you give to me or anybody else who aspires to, to write? I would tell you that I think one of the most important, one of the, um, but it, it fits in everything you stand for, uh, you know, in the work that you do, Brian. Um, it's all about preparation. Too often people start out just, I'm going to write a book. And they just start writing. And they then suddenly they get to some place and they go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it's only a thousand words in and I'm already exhausted, right? Uh, and I got to write 65,000 in order for this book to be seen as a real book. Um, so one of the things that, that we try to do, and I say we because – I've been blessed today. I have a team, right? I have, I have, I have folks that work with and for me who are, um, who are part of my research process, part of my drafting process. Um, but as I'm looking at a project, 
um, before we even get really deeply into the writing, we, uh, we outline the crap out of a project. And that allows, that allows me, us, to, on any given day, pick up the project at any given spot. And so I'm, I would take, and let's say I'm writing a book, and I'm going to assume it to be a 25-chapter book. Uh, I just did this the other day with a guy that um, that's looking to do a book. I was trying to help him out. And we sit down and we we built out 25 concepts that each of which is worthy of 3,000 words, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot, right? It's most it's a good, decent-sized magazine story. Um, and, then, and then with each concept, you then try to figure out in what order do they need to be so that there's some rhythm to what you're writing. And People can flow one to the next pretty naturally. It's not an abrupt change on each one of those concepts. And then as part of the outline process, I do my best to write the opening paragraph and the closing paragraph of every chapter of the book before I sit down to write the book. That way I know how each chapter starts and how each chapter ends and how they flow to the next. And in all of that work on the front end, it means that if I wake up today and I say, gosh, today I want to talk about whatever, right? Man, last night I dreamt about whatever. And I, I dream a lot about projects while I'm working on them. Um, I could pick the book up on chapter 21 today when I haven't even ch finished chapter three previously because I know how it's going to start in the end. So now I know what I need to work on in between. So it, it sounds like a laborious uh, effort, but what it really is, is if you do all the work on the front end, right? If you do all that work in the gym by yourself, then when it's time to perform in front of the audience, it's not that big a deal. So I know you also do some executive coaching and I, uh, we were talking before we started recording, I went to school for sports psychology and was doing mental performance coaching and then started doing some executive coaching really enjoyed it. So went back to school to learn more about executive coaching. And one of the biggest takeaways for me in that process was the program I went to really outlined how to start every executive coaching conversation and how to end everyone. So I start everyone by saying, what do you want to work on today? Why is this meaningful for you? What would success look like during our meeting? What's getting in the way for you? So I literally have a worksheet that I send to my clients called the every meeting worksheet that has those four questions. It has a fifth question, which is actually the first one, which is what did you work on between our last meeting and give me an update on your homework. Um, but the beginning is very, very structured now. And I find it to be amazingly um, freeing for me as a coach because I know we're going to check these boxes every meeting. And when we get into those initial questions, that's when the coaching really starts. Yeah. And then the ending is, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about your situation? And what do you want to do between now and our next meeting? So it's a call to action. And having that beginning and the ending allows me to do what I love, which is to be curious and just play and, and just have fun. And so um, what I'd love to do with you is to leverage that ending part and um, is there anything I see you kind of taking some notes here and there? Is there anything you learned about yourself uh, in our conversation today that that you found useful that that you're thinking you'll you'll take with you? Well, I, without question, I mean, I love I like I, I can't wait to uh, 
and spend a little more time with you. you. You and I mentioned we might grab coffee one of these days when I'm up there in your area speaking. But I'd love to learn about the 40, um, these, these uh, kind of the, the preparation versus performance um, uh, lessons and habits that you've learned. I, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a concept I'd love to learn more about. I, um, the, uh, you know, I want to go back and, and dig deeper with David Ross about what, I mean, I, I know what his answer was when he shared it with me. But maybe I'd love to, add, love, love to dig deeper into why did he accept the feedback that Theo Epstein offered him? as opposed to arguing, what was it about that moment that, and him that other than just being at the bottom, you know, you're not going to, you don't know where you're going to work next. Uh, was there something else about him that I didn't, I don't think I fully explored that with him as greatly as I should have. I, I realized that from our conversation. Um, so I'm making myself notes because these are things I'm going to go do after, after our call is over. Well, for me, you've got me thinking about my writing process and, why wouldn't I really get clear on the beginning and ending of every chapter? And um, like I have a uh, summary. Uh, I'm, I'm being coached. So I, I hired a coach because as I said, I don't, I've never done this before. So I hired a coach. She's awesome. She'd been extremely helpful. And so she gives me a, you know, I write an outline, like a little bit of an outline, a summary, but I think having a beginning and ending of every chapter for me, because I'm good at playing in the weeds. I'm not a pr person that has a problem writing 3,000 words. I have a problem writing 7,000 words. That's my problem. But to have that beginning and end will give me such better clarity on what I'm actually going to do with the chapter. And so it's interesting that when you said that, that resonated so much with me in the same way that my coaching program, like get the beginning and ending down. And then Brian, your, your gift lies in that middle part. Like, like you said, being curious, that's easy for me. I can just listen and ask questions. And that's how I set up this podcast. But that, that's a big takeaway for me. So thank you for that. And what I'd love to do in our final minutes is just give you a platform to promote anything that you feel like deserves promoting. Where can we learn about you, the work you're doing? I have a million other questions that maybe I'll ask over coffee. Um, like I'm, I'm blown away at how you're able to focus when you've got all of this stuff going around. Um, you know, these different businesses, I think you have like three different businesses uh, and a goal to write a book a year. I'm, I'm still left with more questions, which is, I think, a, a good conversation. But let us know where we can find out uh, where to follow you on social media, website, all that good stuff. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all that's basically at Don Yeager and it's Don Yeager, Y-A-E-G-E-R. Um, uh, you know, I, I try to do a, I share a quote a day with a group of, of, uh, about 50,000 folks. And so, uh, you know, if any of your listeners happen to want one quote every morning in their inbox, uh, that will hopefully get their day right. Um, we offer that up every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern. And so I get great list of folks who, who get a chance to stay in touch that way. But I will tell you, just to play off of the discussion we had earlier, like why wouldn't you just stay at Sports Illustrated? Why not just, um, even in the speaking world, I'm starting to look ahead and I'm realizing, you know, speaking is going to change one day too. One of learning is occurring differently. Podcasts are different than they used to be. The importance of podcasts. And so last year, we sat down and I've had a dream for a couple of years to build my first online learning course, right? The ability to actually deliver content to somebody without having to be physically present and to do it uh, in a way that has a, you know, that actually has a, um, a meaningful purpose and, and takes them from point A to point B. That's our real goal. 
And so we built our first course, uh, just went live uh, a few weeks ago, uh, called Journey to Greatness. And it's, um, you know, it, we, we go through the elements of what I learned from the greatest winners uh, that I've had a chance to work with and what the lessons they taught me, uh, how those lessons can be applied into what we do. So I can't help you jump higher. I can't help you, uh, uh, you know, go left to right and do a, do a shuttle run any better than, than, uh, than, than you did before. But I can help you um, master some of the skill sets that they said really made a difference in what allowed them to be great. And so we're doing our first online learning course. Again, it's just the evolution of what I get to do. Um, and everything we're doing, we're always trying to think, uh, you know, where, where, where is our marketplace going to be a couple of years from now? And how do we make sure we're preparing today to be ready in that marketplace? This online course is kind of our current, it's our current effort to try to start moving ahead. That resonates. Every CEO or C-suite executive I've ever worked with, they are always thinking about the future. And uh, they're always figuring out how do we evolve? How do we get better? Honestly, the sports teams are no different. Like I've spent time with people from the San Antonio Spurs and the Spurs are, are you know, the team of the last 20 years. And you look at the way they play and how they've evolved and Popovich and RC Buford are, are tremendous leaders with the Spurs and they're always evolving. They're always shifting how they're going to play the style this year, they're trying something pretty radical, which is shoot actually more mid-range shots and twos because the game is evolving now to just defend three-point shots because of data. So I think you're, you're an example of what I see in successful business people and sport people in that they are always becoming while also being. And so that, that tension between becoming and being, and you talked about being present earlier, uh, that ability to be where your feet are and be in that moment while also becoming is a thread that I finding a lot of the people that I have on the podcast. So thank you for sharing. Um, I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. Don, when you, uh, when you come to town, maybe we'll shoot some hoops instead of getting a cup of coffee. I've got a torn ACL that, I, that I've got from playing basketball. So I don't know if you've got any uh, scars from your days of pickup basketball, but maybe we can exchange those and, and exchange ideas as well. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your journey and, and also a lot of other people's journeys who you've been uh, so fortunate to be a part of as well. Brian, thank you very much. It is a, uh, it's an honor and I look forward to uh, continuing our journey together. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. But I'm also trying to stay mentally sharp. I think that that's, you know, I don't ever, I'm, um, I'm never satisfied with what I know or what I'm told, I'm always trying to ask the next question. And that, um, that again, it's curiosity. It, um, it keeps me, keeps me, I think, sharper. 